I uh, find their places back. We're uh, I wanted to just mention before we before we get into the message, we just got these <clears throat> door hangers, brand new door hangers in. Be our guest this Sunday has our information on it. Has the plan of salvation in the back and a little message from our church. So <clears throat> if any of you are interested in hanging some of those on doors, I think that'd be a nice thing. Uh, let's see if you're if you're looking for a non-confrontational way to uh, go out and invite people to church. That's a great way to do it. So uh, you can see me or Miss Gabby if you are looking for some of those. First Samuel chapter 11 is where we're at tonight. First Samuel chapter 11. As we look at the life of Saul, there are lots of negatives as we've already discussed. And uh, we'll see a lot of negatives as we go throughout his life. But tonight is one of those few uh, scenes in scripture where Saul really shines and did well. So we can, uh, we can go ahead and give credit for where credit is due and look at some of the choices he made that were good and some of the good things that happened here. Uh, and it was, this was a great performance we find in the first part of First Samuel chapter 11. Sadly, Saul never rose again to these hei- this height of good behavior of uh, doing the right thing. But let's start verse number 1, 1 Samuel 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, And on this condition will I make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. And the elders of Jabesh said unto them, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers into all the coasts of Israel and... Uh, and then, if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. Then came the messengers of Gibeah of Saul and told the tidings in the ears of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. A couple of strange things here. Uh, we'll talk about it more as we go through, but I just thought I'd mention it now. There's a an implied yes answer to their request in verse 3, because then they went. Uh, so, evidently, Jehah... Je, uh, uh, Nahash said, yeah, okay, you take your seven days, as we can see. Uh, that's what happened. Um, I just find that odd. <laughs> I'm going to kill you. Can you have seven days and let us try to find somebody to beat you up? Sure. Go at it. That's what basically was happening here. So they came in verse 4, and then in verse 5, and behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field, and Saul said, what aileth the people that they weep? And they told him, the tidings of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard these tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. He took a yoke of oxen and hewed them in pieces and sent them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hands of the messengers, saying, Whosoever shall not, uh, whoever, whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. When he had numbered them in Basic, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. We're going to read a couple of more verses. We'll work our way through the chapter, but we'll look at more in a few minutes, but let's open in prayer. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity uh, to read your word. We pray you use it now for our benefit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see Saul here coming to the defense of Jabesh-Gilead, who were oppressed by the Ammonites. This was one of the reasons the people wanted a king, remember? Uh, All the way back in chapter 8, verse 20, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. What Samuel reminded them, what do you think he's going to fight the, your battles with? Uh, you, your sons. That's what he's going to, I mean, he's not going to go by himself. And so, uh, th- but that's what they wanted. So the success of Saul over the Ammonites, of course, 
as we'll see, will please Israel greatly. Unfortunately, it's the only victory that brought such satisfaction to Israel in Saul's life. So this is really like the one high point. Uh, We're going to, if you graph Saul's life, this is the high point. From now on, it's going to be like this, you know. So we'll look at what he did this evening. Let's let's begin by looking at the enemy. Uh, The text says, Nahash the Ammonite came up and he camped against Jabesh-Gilead. The Israelites are facing the Ammonites. Now, if you remember, the Ammonites are descendants of Lot's incestuous affair with his daughters. The elder of the two daughters had a son uh, with Lot, and they call, she called his name Moab, and he became the father of the Moabites. The younger daughter had a son with Lot, and he, he was Benami, and he was the father of the Ammonites. So they were a defiled people, and typical of defiled people, they were at, at enmity with God's people. And wicked people never get along with God's people. They're the uh, they are they are shamed by God's people. They are convicted by God's people, so they won't get along with them. Uh, this wouldn't help if you remember that when Israel was working the way through Canaan or to get to Canaan, they would not help them. Uh, uh, Israel on their way there, they they're the ones that hired Balaam to prophesy against Israel. If you remember that Deuteronomy chapter twenty-three. So Nahash was the ruler. Now he his name means serpent or snake. So we can call him Nahash or we can call him serpent boy, but that was what his name means. And it's fitting because he was like that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan. The Bible calls him in Revelation chapter 20 because he would harm God's people and wanted to uh, put a bad hurting on them. So how many rulers of how many nations do we see this where they uh, have been like serpents in their rule, eventually attacking God's people were just... Uh, talking to uh, about uh, Brazil, you know, just went through an election uh, on Sunday, and and uh, basically, what happened to, to us in 2020 happened to them now, and then they're going through the same thing. But uh, sooner or later, these serpent leaders start to attack God's people. It says that he encamped against Jabesh Gilead, which Jabesh Gilead is about 35 miles north of the Dead Sea, is one of the weakest places on Israel's border, and these neighbors to the east realized that Israel was vulnerable, and so now they will attack. You know, the same thing happened many years later. Uh, In uh, May 14, 1948 was the day that Israel declared itself a nation, established again, and uh, it was the next day that Israel's neighbors invaded, and they've been fighting ever since. Uh, They they really thought they, they were weakened, and so they attacked at their weak spot, which the enemy always does. They'll do the same for you, by the way. Find out where you're weak, find out where you're vulnerable, and that's where our enemy attacks us as well. That's why we have to grow spiritually uh, in every area of our life and, uh, and, and always take care of those things. So look at uh, verse 1 again. All the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve thee. So they quickly uh, complied to the invading Ammonites. Even before they fought, they basically gave up uh, the... <laughs> Not to make fun of any country, but the, Fran- the French salute. Have you ever seen the French salute? That's the French salute. Uh, this, that's what they did. They gave him the French salute. We give up. Uh, and they said, uh, make a covenant with us, we'll serve thee. So they, the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead are willing to trade their freedom uh, for survival. But this sellout really is similar to the philosophy that many people have today of peace at any price. You look at, uh, it, it amazes me how small of a segment of our society 
can hold ransom all the businesses and corporations in our nation. And, and you know, they represent, what, 2 4% of Americans, if that, the, uh, the uh, EIEIO people, you know, the, what are, I'm not thinking of the letters right now, but uh, the, the uh, homosexual movement and all those things, uh, they're, they're, they are holding ransom. And rather than upsetting anybody, it's peace at any cost. And so we give up our principles, we give up the things that we stand for, and uh, we're trading all, we're trading our belief systems and our heritage for peace at any price. There are times when we do not make peace with the enemy. There are those times. Peace is a good thing if we have it according to God's standard. Can I remind you that in 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. But the peace that the world is after is not the peace that God offers. They don't want peace after what, what the, how the Bible instructs us to have it. That's why Jesus said in Luke 12, 51, Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth? Nay, but rather division. Uh, there are times when we don't seek after peace. There are times when we stand for what is right. And this is not a contradiction in Scripture, by the way, that uh, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And then Jesus said, Do you think I'm coming to give peace? Nay, but division. But it's rather in, in how that peace is obtained. One of my favorite verses about this idea of peace is in James 3.17. But the wisdom that is above, uh, from above, is first pure, then peaceable. And easy to be entreated, full of mercy and of good fruits, without partiality, without, without hypocrisy. The way that our world handles it today, and many lack of a better word, liberal churches, is they go after peace before purity. But the, the Bible says that the wisdom that's from above, it's first pure, then peaceable. So when, when we, we can be peaceable with those that have uh, the purity for, of the wisdom from above, amen? We can have peace with that. But there are times when we have to stand up for what's right and not uh, give up our freedoms and give up our beliefs and give up our principles just to have peace. Preachers all over this country are letting people sit in their pews, die and go to hell because they love peace too much to preach the truth. And that's a sad thing. It's a sad thing in our churches. It's a sad thing in our nation. First pure, then peaceable. That's what the Bible says. Best way to spread God's love and God's peace is to spread righteousness. Amen? And we see that in nations as well. The, the service that the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead here are... This is not, lest we misunderstand, uh, some kind of peaceable arrangement. This is all-out enslavement. They are giving themselves over to be slaves rather than to fight for their freedom. They, they lacked courage and uh, character. And then look at the stipulation that Nahash came back with in verse 2. On this condition will I make a covenant with you that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for a reproach upon Israel. Man, nice guy, huh? That's a, that's a, uh, an amazing thing. So his stipulation for this covenant of peace involved three things: a guile that I might cut, thrust out your right eyes. This was more than just a cruel act on his part. Uh, it was a total disarming of Jabesh Gilead. Uh, they needed their right eyes to be archers. They needed their right eyes as they would carry the shield with their left hand, and they would look at it look past the shield with their right eye. This was disarming them. This would make them completely useless 
they would never be able to take up arms against him. So that's one thing that he was looking at uh, as he was doing this. It was uh, it, basically to blind them would make them utterly helpless, even though it's in only one eye. Plus, you got no death perception, not be able to uh, go to battle. And that's exactly what he had in mind. That, that's, by the way, that's what the enemy always wants, to make us unable to fight, make us unable to, to remove all our defenses from us. The second thing was greed. This was also, he got greedy beyond what would be good for him because putting out their right eye it would be disarming them, yes, but it would also, if they're going to be slaves, it would seriously handicap them from doing their the most for him. So uh, he would get, of course, in the end, no benefit at all, uh, but he was a little bit too greedy, and sin is often this way. Uh, a little gain causes sin to think that we can just go for more, and then we go for more, and then we go for more. I think of a person that gambles is often this situation here. Uh, taking uh, wins a little money, so he gambles and maybe even wins a little more, but eventually loses everything. That's the typical path that uh, gamblers take. Sin loves to take what you uh, give you what you think you want, but take what you have. That's what sin does. And you did it with Samson. It did it with the Israelites, with the king, with this king whole situation here. Uh, they got what they wanted and lost what they had. In fact, God, we read the verse last week that God gave them re their request, but sent leanness to their soul. They got what they wanted, they lost what they had, and sin forever will do that for us. Not only guile and greed, but grief. He said, "I want to lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. Removing the right eye of these people would make the Israelites a helpless people." That would make them a great reproach because, after all, they're God's people. So it's not only an insult to God's people, it's an insult to God himself. And that's always what Satan is after. He always wants to hurt God's people so that he can ultimately give, lack of a better term, give God a black eye. You know, God's not going to get a black eye, but you know what I mean. He's wanting to, he's wanting to harm him, uh, or at least look like it. He wants to repro a reproach to be on Christianity and on anything that is good. If you are chaste and pure... You'll be laughed at by others. If you abstain from vices, you'll be out of the loop and not involved. Uh, this, this happens in a lot of workplaces and friendships. If you're weird enough to think that there's only two genders, you'll be a bigot. You know what I'm saying? We can go on and on with a whole long list of things here. But uh, Satan wants evil to be elevated, and while godliness is looked down on as weak and stupid and etc., etc., Look, watch, if you want further definition of this, just watch CNN. Uh, don't watch CNN, just take my word for it. I don't want to punish anybody. Um, Isaiah 5.20 Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. And is that not our nation today? All right, so they, in verse, uh, verse 3, they ask this favor. Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers into all the coasts of Israel. This is amazing to me, that if there be any man to save us, will come out to thee. So they asked for a week to find someone to help them defend themselves. If they got no help, then in seven days, they'd have to acquiesce to what he said. And what kind of man gives them seven days? That's what I couldn't believe reading this. He's, he's cool with that. A very, very confident man gives them seven days. They have no chance. Here's Israel. They have no leadership. They're in this big transition. Enemy always strikes when he's weak. When you're weak, by the way. Have you ever noticed that if you are fatigued or if you're sick 
or if you're uh, very distressed about something going on in your life, that it's easier for Satan to get in his claws into your life. Uh, he always attacks when you're weak, uh, and as, he did, as this uh, Nahash did here. This showed his arrogancy, thought he was perfectly safe. And uh, Nahash was defeated really at the end because of his pride here. We also can get very overconfident in dealing with the enemy. Uh, if, once we have some victories in our life, we need to be careful. Uh, always watching, always knowing. The Bible says, be sober, be vigilant for your adversaries. The devil walketh out as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we see a few victories in our life. We need to be careful that we don't just let, that, uh, let ourselves be taken. The temptation comes back as uh, Jabesh Gilead did here and, and can swat us with a devastating blow. Now, what happens next? Verse 4. Saul, who is now the king of Israel, hears this appeal and enlists an army. Look what happens here as, as the step-by-step step in verse 4. Then came the messengers of Gibeah to, uh, to Gibeah of Saul and told the tidings in the ears of people. Notice, they did not come to Saul, their king. They came to where Saul lived. Uh, they did not specifically seek him out. They just told the people about it. By the way, Gibeah of Saul would not have been named this yet. This is named because by the time this is written, uh, then, then that's what it was known as. Uh, they just came to the people there. And then all the people lifted up their voice and wept, the Bible says. The first reaction was obviously great sorrow because after all, what do you think is going to happen if Jabesh Gilead gets defeated? What's going to happen to them? Uh, look at Hitler and other despots in, in, in uh, our history. They don't stop. They just keep on going and going and going. So they were very worried here. Uh, look at verse 5. And behold, Saul came in after came after the herd out of the field, and Saul said, What aileth the people that they weep? And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. Uh, obviously gets to town. He immediately knows something's going on. People are wailing and weeping, and, and uh, they're all upset. So he asks after the welfare of the people, a good, a good trade of the king. And uh, by the way, he's not always this compassionate about his people as he is in the beginning here. This is going to change as pride enters into his life. But I find this also interesting. Where do we find Saul? He's still taking care of a flock of animals. Isn't that interesting? He's been made king, and he's still out there in the field taking care of animals. This speaks of Saul's humility at this point. Can I remind you of somebody else? David did the same thing. David killed Goliath, then he went back out and watched sheep again. In fact, before David killed Goliath, he had been in the palace playing the harp for King Saul, and then uh, in that high position, and then he went back out to the sheep, then goes kills Goliath, then goes back out to the sheep again. And then uh, Saul, after, he's, after he is crowned king, he again goes out and watches the sheep. I think it's interesting that uh, people who are willing, it, it always bothers me when anybody thinks that they're too, of too high a position to do something, you know, whether uh, they, they won't clean toilets or they won't do this simple job because after all they're in some big position. Can I encourage you just to remain faithful where you are? Let God promote you? In Psalm 78, 70, the Bible says, He chose David also his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. Uh, that's, a, that's a great principle because uh, David was busy doing what he was supposed to be doing and God promoted him to something else. God always promotes busy people. Look at what happens next. When Saul heard about what's going on, he reacts strongly. Look at what the Bible says here in uh, where we at. Verse 6, and the Spirit of God came upon Saul and heard these tidings. His anger was kindled greatly. This was holy passion. 
So much passion in society today is not holy passion. It's passion after the things of the world stimulated by fleshly desires. It's easy to get excited about things of the world, but people don't get that excited about the things of God. Uh, have you ever been to a football game? And They get excited at football games. You got those big fat guys that are shirtless out in the cold weather with their big numbers and letters painted on their chests. And uh, that same person can come to church and hear somebody say amen and wonders what's wrong with him. You know? And uh, I'm not saying I want anyone to come in here shirtless. But uh, maybe a little excitement would be good in church sometimes. Amen. His anger was kindled greatly. Saul became upset by evil. Notice that the anger came as a result of the Holy Spirit coming upon him. This was righteous anger. All anger is not bad. You hear that? Oh, most of the time. Most of the time it is. But the Bible actually commands us to be angry and to sin not. Ephesians. Uh, but not all anger is bad. Again, most of the time, because we are such weak and sinful people, most of the time our anger is bad. But not all anger is bad. We need to learn to distinguish between good and bad anger. The world will always label anger against evil as bad anger. So if we don't like people invading our country, we are evil because we're angry about that. Or we don't like babies being murdered in the womb, we're evil because we're angry about that. You understand? Anytime we have righteous anger at evil, the world treats that as bad anger. That's one of our problems, though, today in society. We're not angry at evil like we should be. There are things to be angry at. Like when we hear a sitting United States governor talk about how uh, abortion after birth that you take the baby, you put it in a separate room, and you just let make the baby comfortable, let it die. If we just, you know, those type of things ought to make us angry. That ought to make God's people angry. And uh, but by the way, slavery ended because somebody got angry. William Wilberforce grew very angry at the slave trade in British in, in uh, England, and in 1833 he abolished it. In the spring of 1828, a young man came to New Orleans for a job. He came across a slave auction and watched with disgust as a pretty young girl was being sold. She was in front of the buyers who paraded in front of them and, and made to walk back and forth while they pinched her flesh and commented on the way that she walked. She was trotted about like an animal to see how she moved. And this young man raged to a friend of his, if I ever get a chance to hit slavery, I'll hit it hard. That young man was Abraham Lincoln, and he did get his chance to hit it, and he hit it hard uh, years later in the 1860s. We would do well to have righteous anger against sin sometimes, and uh, we don't have enough of it today. I don't know who made this quote, but I like it. A person who is angry on the right grounds against the right persons in the right manner at the right moment for the right length of time deserves great praise. But those are very hard things to do, aren't they? Uh, we, we don't get angry at the right time for the right amount of time. In other words, we're not in control of it. If we control the anger, that's one thing. If the anger controls us, that's a big problem. Most of the time, our anger controls us. All right, what did Saul do next? He took his yoke of oxen, uh, a yoke of oxen, and hewed them in pieces. Again, this would seem very extreme in our day and age, but he was more interested here in conquering evil than he was in compromise. We today are more interested in compromise than we are in conquering evil. So this hewing had a purpose. The 
the pieces were sent with messengers as an object lesson to all the people. Look at verse 7. Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. This is a call to war. So going out after the enemy. It's good. It would take courage uh, to respond to this. But Paul, Saul gave a warning that went along with it that there would be severe consequences for not responding. Now, this isn't a new thing. Uh, even our nation has uh, things again, if you dodge the draft, unless you, it's Clinton, but otherwise, you know, you can't dodge the draft and get away with those things. You have to, uh, every, every uh, country has those types of laws, uh, penalties. It's also interesting, he said Saul and Samuel. Samuel was along with this, and we see that Samuel, and not only would he give Saul credibility, but it would also strengthen the call to arms there. Look at the response of the people. We've got to move along quickly here because i got like two minutes. Uh, one consent. They were all of one mind to fight this war. You know what that tells me? They didn't have a news media to criticize and undermine the nation's efforts. That's one thing it tells me. The fear of the Lord fell upon the people. Uh, our nation seems to think that righteousness is a hindrance to our nation. They make efforts to undermine us and rule out any forms of godliness. But the fear of God is a great help to any nation. If people within a nation fear God, it will be a better nation. The Bible says in Psalm 33, 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So out of Israel and out of Judah, he got 330,000 people to help him. This is a terrible, uh, war is a terrible thing, but sometimes it is necessary. I read the other day that only in, in all of human history, only 8% of the time has there been no wars in all of human history. It's amazing. Sometimes war is necessary. So he made the promise that by tomorrow, this by the time the sun will be hot, which is uh, afternoon, uh, that they would, be, uh, they would be there with help. And of course, they were glad, the Bible says. That's an understatement. <laughs> they, the loss of an eye plus slavery hung over them. What's worse than slavery? Well, slavery with one eye would be worse than slavery alone, but uh, Saul's words gave them hope. And then we see a great victory. I just have to kind of skip over this. Uh, they slew the Amorites until the heat of the day, the Bible says. Uh, this in indicates a lot of slain Ammonites. Uh, they, those who were ready to take the eyes from the men of Jabesh Gilead instead met their doom. The Bible also says they that which remained were scattered so that two of them were not left together. No chance for them to uh, form formulate another army and get together and uh, uh, come for a counterattack. There wasn't anybody even uh, paired up. I want to look at verse 12 and 13 as we close out tonight. And the people said unto Samuel, after the great victory, the people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. They're, they're kind of excited here. I mean, they just had this great victory. Who are the ones that said Saul's not our king? Let's kill him. Look what Saul says in verse 13. Saul said, There shall not a man be put to death this day, for today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. He's still humble at this point. It all changes, but he still recognizes that God's the one that brought the victory at this point. And God blesses that humility. At Saul's worldview at this time in his life is that life is sacred. He says no one else is going to die here today. Remember this. Uh, because he's not going to look at this that way 
from here on out. I think it's interesting. The men of Jabesh Gilead will never forget this day. After all of Saul's wickedness and ruined life, at the end of his life when he is beheaded, his body is hung out in shame. It was the men of Jabesh Gilead that crossed the Jordan River, took him down and brought him back and gave him a decent burial. Uh, they'll always, they always appreciated what he did for them here. But it's a, it's kind of a window in Saul's life that's actually a good positive one. <laughs> and, uh, unfortunately it kind of goes south from here, uh, because as we're going to see, pride starts to take a hold. Man, oh man, is pride ever destructive. Pride is so, so, so destructive. As soon as we start to put more emphasis on us than we do on what God wants of us. So hopefully those are some lessons for us. Thank you, Lord.